This podcast contains explicit language. If you want to know how explicit, keep listening. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of January 16th, 2024. On this week's show, we'll dig into the opening weekend of the NFL playoffs, where the Lions won their first postseason game in more than 30 years, and the Cowboys and Eagles bombed out. We'll also talk about Nick Saban's retirement and Bill Belichick saying goodbye to New England and possibly hello to Atlanta. Finally, Ben Rothenberg will join us to discuss his new biography of Naomi Osaka, who just rejoined the tour as a new mother after a year away from professional tennis. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the Tallest Person on this show. Also in D.C. is Stefan Fatsis. He is the author of the books Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic, and Wild and Outside. Hello, Stefan. And the shortest person on the show. I was oh, waiting I, for it. Come on. I, I wasn't, can take it. No, I wasn't thinking about that at all. And with us from California, the host of three seasons of Slow Burn, it's the average height of Joel Anderson. I think 5'11 is two inches taller than the median. Yeah. So actually, I'm slightly above average in terms of height. I think of you as um, uniformly excellent, not slightly above average. Don't sell yourself short. Well, thanks. Well, I mean, you, you're the one that assigned me, you know, sort of average heighted. So I wanted to just make sure <laughs> it was clear that I'm taller than the average. Closer to six foot in my, my uh, high school, my high school, uh, you know, program guide, I'm, I was listed at 6'1". So, <laughs> listed yeah. at 6'1". Yeah, the, cover, six the cover of my hard copy of... A few seconds of panic says I was 5'8". I don't think I'm 5'8". <laughs> Before we get to our first segment, we want to thank our Slate Plus members, as always, for making the show possible. And we've got a bonus segment for our members. It's an exclusive. If you want to hear it, you've got to be a Slate Plus member. And it's going to be about uh, the NFL. We're going to continue our conversation about the playoffs, getting into the young quarterback, CJ Stroud, Jordan Love, me a little about. Uh, Peacock as well. Uh, if you want to hear that and you want to hear bonus segments on other Slate shows too, uh, get ad-free listening for all Slate podcasts and support us. You need to be a Slate Plus member. To sign up, go to slate.com slash hangupplus. That's slate.com slash hangupplus. Between 1958, the year after their last NFL championship, and Sunday, the Detroit Lions had a playoff record of one win and 13 losses. Shout that out included- Eric Kramer. That's right. Eric Kramer and Barry Sanders, but mostly Eric Kramer. Three touchdown passes in that win. The losses included a five to nothing defeat to Dallas in 1970 in what has to be one of the worst NFL games ever. The quarterbacks that day went a combined 11 for 38 for 130 yards. The quarterbacks for both teams. There were three of them. And the weather wasn't even bad. That game made me love crazy football scores. So it was no surprise that fans were crying in the stands in Ford Field on Sunday after Detroit beat the Los Angeles Rams 24 to 23. The Lions under head coach Dan Campbell, the guy who, when he was hired three years ago, promised that his teams would bite off opponents' kneecaps, are one of the most entertaining in football, third in the NFL in total yards, fourth in scoring this season, going for it on fourth down all the time, faking punts from wherever on the field. Joel, it was a crazy wild card weekend. Two feet of snow in Buffalo, sub-zero temperatures in Kansas City, the sad Philadelphia Eagles getting blown out by Tampa Bay, Dallas 
as you wrote on Twitter. That's <laughs> D-A hyphen L-O-L hyphen L-A-S. Also getting blown out at home by Green Bay and what seemed to me like a ton of dudes getting concussed. But let's start in Detroit. What do you make of the big football energy Detroit Lions? Well, without being too self-indulgent here, I go back to the NFL's uh, regular season finale last year um, when the Lions had nothing to play for other than ruining the Green Bay Packers' playoff hopes. You know, this would have been Aaron Rodgers' finale in Green Bay, and all the Lions, they hadn't, it was nothing other than playing spoiler. And they played so hard and seemed so joyful, and it was really easy to root for them. And they won that game. And, you know, after the game, they interviewed Jamal Williams. He scored the touchdown for the, for the Detroit Lions, and it was just so cool. And because... I followed the NFL for so long, you just think, all right, well, that was a really nice story, but we'll never hear from the Lions again. Um, you know, Dan Wetzel, uh, the Yahoo sports columnist who lives in Detroit, wrote he wrote this in a recent column. He said, so often across the decades, it didn't even feel like Detroit had an NFL team, at least not in anything but a supporting role. And I could kind of, I don't know about you guys, but like watching football, watching the NFL, you you're right. Like, it's not like the Lions are anywhere near the center of the tension, except for maybe the Thanksgiving Day games, which they always are part of. But, you know, it's not like anybody has spent a lot of time thinking about the Lions if you don't live in Detroit. But um getting a chance to watch that game on Saturday, seeing the energy in Ford Field, I have to restrain myself from calling it the Pontiac Silverdome uh, because that's, <laughs> that's kind of how old I am. But... um it was just so cool, man. And it's that it's very rare. You know, the one thing about the NFL, it's very national league, but you kind of forget that like all the cities have their own little cultures, their own little like civic mindedness about these these teams. And it was just so cool to see the people of Detroit get this moment. I mean, a, you know, a couple of weeks ago we had on Vinny Goodwill um to talk about like, you know, the misery of being a Detroit sports fan. But this, like, this was something that I think that if if you didn't have a rooting interest in it, it was like one of the rare, like really cool, fun stories. And then you got a guy like, you know, um, Jared Goff, who had been a L.A. Rams quarterback previously, and they kind of got rid of him to, and traded him for Matt Stafford. And for him to excel under those circumstances against that team and to knock them out of the playoffs, like that's that's what you want to see. And, you know, that, I mean, obviously there's a Dan Campbell of it all. And, um, you know, obviously he's built something there that seems like it has some actual resilience and that it's going to be here for a while. But I was I was very, very much excited. It wasn't a game I was looking forward to going into the weekend because, again, it was the Lions. But at the end of the at the end of the weekend and you look back on it, that was one of the better scenes from the weekend, I would think. I was in the stands in uh, the Superdome when the Saints won their first ever playoff game back in 2000, uh, also against the Rams. Shout out to the Rams for playing a key supporting role in the uh, momentous moments for both of these franchises. But this was, you know, Aaron Brooks and Willie Jackson, like names that uh, NFL fans don't really remember, but Saints fans do. Um, and there's this play at the end of the game where the Saints clinched it when Oz Hakeem dropped a punt and the you know, local radio broadcast by Jim Henderson, the play-by-play man was, you know, first Hakeem drops the ball, Hakeem drops the ball, but then culminated with there is a God. Um, and there is this kind of feeling that's different and in many ways better, I think, than winning a conference championship game or even winning a Super Bowl of ending not just a long drought, but a sense that the that an entire franchise 
and because we, you know, make so much of football in our our culture and our lives that like the city is somehow like doomed, um, doomed to failure, doomed to catastrophe. And that kind of moment when that switch flips, there's nothing really like it in sports and in sports fandom. And so I obviously remember that um, as a Saints fan and as a New Orleanian. And so I can imagine what folks in Detroit are thinking now. And so, you know, to move past the kind of cosmic and spiritual aspect of this, um, I think, you know, Stefan, you put in a lot of notes about um, Dan Campbell in our research, but I was drawn to the whole kind of structure that this franchise has put in place. And in particular, um, the general manager, Brad Holmes, son of an NFL player, an offensive lineman, Melvin Holmes for the Steelers in the 70s. His dad, Melvin and Brad, they both uh, went to North Carolina A&T and HBCU. Brad graduate, graduated cum laude. He worked in an enterprise rent-a-car while trying to break into pro sports. He did it as a public relations intern with the St. Louis Rams, go Rams again, in 2003. He worked his way up after 10 years to become the director of college scouting. And if you're the director of college scouting for the Rams in that era, these are the players that you brought into your franchise. Todd Gurley, Cooper Cup. Aaron Donald, and the current Detroit Lions quarterback, Jared Goff, who Holmes acquired from the Rams in his first transaction as the Lions general manager. Um, and then there's the defensive coordinator, Aaron Glenn, um, another uh, black coach, and a survey um, by the NFL Players Association. He was the most popular coordinator in the NFL right now. There's um, a lot of talk about Ben Johnson, the offensive coordinator for the Lions, is probably going to get one of these openings. But Aaron Glenn is a guy who's interviewed for head, for head coaching jobs. Um, he will and should be again. He, sh I'm I'm thinking he will probably become a head coach too. And so it's this isn't just a story about Dan Campbell, Stefan. It's about an organization giving people opportunities um, and seemingly being rewarded for it. And not only that, it's about a head coach who, when he was introduced, yeah, everybody made fun of because of this speech about eating kneecaps, but who has turned out to be the kind of coach that modern players appreciate. He played himself for 10 years in the NFL. Um, he respects what the players go through on a physical daily basis, but he doesn't shy away from making them do the things that players sort of in the moment can't stand because it is so brutal, but helps to build not only them physically, but to build this culture of responsibility and authority and togetherness. Um, and Adam Kilgore in the Washington Post did a, a nice profile of Campbell that talks about one of the attributes that players respect and his staff respects, and that's that he empowers subordinates. He empowers assistant coaches. Um, and a lot of older school head coaches don't do that. It is more of an autocracy. And at Detroit, Campbell seems to be building this unified staff where everybody knows the responsibility and is allowed to execute it, which is the kind of thing that frustrates assistants and frustrates players at places that don't have that kind of a culture. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that, he definitely seems like to, to be the, the kind of guy you want to play for. And it's just it's really um, such a 180 from about a decade ago when he was serving as the Miami Dolphins 
coach for a little bit. And I listened to the Lebetard show at that time, and it was easy to mock the guy. Like, he was just, you know, kind of a lunkhead, and they called him Man Campbell, you know. Caricature, right? The, caricature yeah, of a football a man. Of a tough guy. Right. Um, but obviously, there was something, there was more depth to him than we thought at the time. And, I mean, it doesn't get any more... Um, impressive like you you can't put a, a thing on your resume that's in the NFL right now better than I rebuilt the the, the Detroit Lions like that kind of seemed like one of those situations that seemed really futile in the NFL and that he was able to build this along with Brad Holmes and Aaron Glenn and Ben Johnson and Jerry Goff and all those other guys but clearly um whatever you know whatever we thought of him a decade ago that's no longer here like this is a different guy and this is obviously a different team for me, the story of the weekend was that these were uh, a lot of, of mismatches, maybe not ones um, that we some some I think we anticipated, given that the you know Steelers um, were playing Mason Rudolph at, at quarterback, um, you know that you could kind of anticipate. But there were just a lot of games where um, you know one of the teams looked really overmatched, um, whether it was the Miami Dolphins and Tua Tungavailoa, you know not being able to, you know, perform at his best in the, you know, horrifying weather conditions in Kansas City, or whether it was the Dallas Cowboys at home where they had dominated, um, just looking utterly inept and overmatched against a Green Bay team that was nine and eight and had barely qualified for the playoffs on a tiebreaker, or the Philadelphia Eagles who played down um, to how they had been playing in the latter kind of third of the season um, against the the Tampa Bay Bucks, another team that had qualified at a nine and eight, and you know, for both of you guys, there are all sorts of questions around. Um, you know, the Eagles is Nick Sirianni going to get fired? The Cowboys is Mike McCarthy going to get fired? Should they move on from Dak Prescott? Should the Dolphins move on from Tua? You know, <laughs> Joe Flacco. Maybe they shouldn't bring him back. No, um, but. I guess I'm a I'm kind of of two two minds here. It it feels like a, a thing that's maybe underplayed is the fact that, you know, forgive me for the banality of this comment, but the playoffs are played at the end of the season when everyone is injured. And so, so these teams aren't able to represent their true selves in the most important games of the season. I think the Dolphins in particular were completely hamstrung by injuries. Um and also by, you know, again, by the by the cold weather. But, you know, Joel. Uh, maybe we can s- start here with the Cowboys. You would think, you know, Jerry Jones is obviously a very reactive owner and somebody who wants to make a splash, but wouldn't it be kind of rational given how horrible they looked and how they haven't been able to have postseason success over the last three years? Like, it it seems like it would make sense, actually, to change something, if not everything. Yeah, in, in generally, I'm I'm this guy. I'm like, well, one game in the playoffs, single elimination really is not a good enough sample size. Like normally I'm like, well, you don't want to read too much into one game because anything can happen. You can have a bad day. Somebody can get hurt. Um, somebody can blow a coverage for whatever reason. And then your season is over. And, um, and then I'm also like, well, if a team is good and consistently good, you stick with them and you just eventually maybe they will break through. And the Cowboys have won 12 games, three straight years in a row. They're clearly a really good team, but also there's a point at which she reaches this like, well, maybe there just needs to be a change of voice in here. Maybe we need to change what we're doing. And, the, and it actually what it could be is that those 12 wins are a sign that there is 
enough talent in there, but maybe it could have been a 13-win team. Maybe it could be a 14-win team if there was a different voice or different leadership there. And because I don't know about you guys, when you watch that game, when the Packers went down the field and scored on that Aaron Jones touchdown to begin the game, I knew the Cowboys were going to lose. Like, it just, it was, it felt weird, even in the stadium, just like the, the atmosphere, the the sound, like it just looked like the air had been taken out of Arlington just that quickly. And I don't know, Stefan, if you felt that way, but it never occurred to me once the Cowboys went down that they were ever going to be able to come back. And that, I mean, that's that goes beyond talent. That goes to how the franchises run and what you know what you think of the mental fortitude of that locker. I mean, this is not a winning franchise like the Detroit Lions. Like this is not, you know, you you can't <laughs> expect them to be resilient in that moment. <laughs> The overlying factor in all of this with Dallas is always Jerry Jones, who has been the team's general manager, not just de facto, but calls himself the general manager for decades since he's owned the team. They haven't won a Super Bowl since the 90s. Um, He is, as Josh said, reactive, and he has an opportunity to react now. And Jones loves nothing more than being in the spotlight. Mike McCarthy, the head coach, has one more year left on his contract. Dak Prescott has one more year left on his contract. He's going to count $59 million against the salary cap in the 2024 season. The team will be paying him something like $34 million. He had a really good season, led the NFL in touchdown passes, threw fewer interceptions than he normally throws. And yet... Some of the advanced stats folks say that he, and not Lamar Jackson, was the regular season MVP. Yeah, Um, And yet, because it's Jerry Jones and because they lost in the first round of the playoffs again and because they've been 12 and 5 the last three years and haven't done anything in the playoffs, one playoff win in those three seasons, um, the conversation is going to be just where Jerry Jones wants it on him and what he's going to do. For a second, can I interject here? And and I want to see, Josh, if you all and and Stephanie, if you all can can ride with me here. Did you all feel sorry for Jerry Jones at the end of this? Like he okay, <laughs> this is gonna sound crazy, right? Especially the black man stepping up here for the dude who's like in the picture, you know, the guy that was in, the picture in North Little Rock uh, High School in 1955, right? But um, Jerry Jones overall has been good for the NFL. Like he's brought attention to it. He's modernizing in a lot of ways. Like oh, he dragged he dragged the owners into the financial modern era in the 90s. Joel Joel yeah. is currently wearing the NFL hat that Rob Lowe wore to that <laughs> no, right. playoff game. He just he just wants he's just happy yeah. that Jerry Jones has been good for the NFL. <laughs> well, I mean, in, 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 I mean, so and I've spent time around the Cowboys franchise when I lived in Dallas and covered that team. It really does feel different from other NFL teams. Like it feels very familial in a way that not a lot of other franchises do. And I don't know if that's just the legacy or the tradition of the franchise or whatever, but it is different there in Dallas. And I think Jerry overall has been good for that franchise and for the NFL. And the dude is. 81 years old. And he said at the end of this game that he was devastated, that this is one of the toughest playoff losses he's ever had. And it kind of occurred to me, um, I was talking about this with some friends over the weekend, like, hey, man, Jerry Jones is not going to get to me. I mean, you not, not to be morbid, but for him, this may have been his best chance at winning another Super Bowl again. And so we might have to stop recording because I'm crying right now. Like, I, I'm yeah, going to need to compose yes, myself. You <laughs> 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 please, yes, yeah, shed a tear for our. <laughs> For the for the, for the legendary uh, Jerry Jones, I don't know. You don't know, so clearly you all don't feel that way. Am I being ridiculous? But I just I felt sorry for him at the end of it because um, I, I think that when Jerry Jones is gone, the NFL is going to miss him. It's kind of like George Steinbrenner dying. You know, 
like you want those characters in your sport yeah. because not only do they suck up the attention, but they spend a ton of money, which is good for players and coaches. Um, and they are demanding of their partners in business. So I don't feel any pity for Jerry Jones. I don't feel sorry for Jerry Jones, but yeah, net net good for the NFL in a lot of ways. Maybe not so good for the Dallas Cowboys on the field for the last couple decades. I'm, I'm not sure how I f- feel about uh, what I'm about to say. So you guys can can check me. But um, <laughs> whether it's with Mike McCarthy or Nick Sirianni, um, it feels to me like, you know, obviously at, at some point the perception becomes the reality. And mm-hmm. a head coach's job, both within the franchise and the locker room, but also, you know, they're the representative, the public face of a franchise. And part of the job is like vibes, right? And the mm-hmm. vibes around... Mike McCarthy and the Cowboys, both because of previous losses, but also because of just how completely ineffectual they looked. I mean, again, I I hate to sound like kind of a troglodyte, but there's obviously, like you said, Joel, there's, you know, you can have a bad game. And I think we all are smart and rational enough to understand that. But is there really a kind of excuse or, or one that, given the recent history for what happened over the weekend that would allow or should allow him to keep his his job? Just given that bringing in a new coach, given that there's a lot of, you know, potential, you know, franchise-altering coaches on the market cost right now, it just, it just seems like an opportunity cost to stick with the guy, both in terms of X's and O's, but also, you know, you need the players to be excited. You need the fan base to be excited. So it's it seems like it would actually be totally reasonable and normal to replace him. The Eagles thing is a tougher call because they made the Super Bowl last year. Nick Sirianni is being hailed as a genius. The team completely collapses this year and just like like they become kind of the Panthers just kind of inexplicably in the last like seven games of the year. And so it's just such a small sample size but such a horrible sample within that sample size that that's just iffier to me. I've never seen um, people publicly criticize an offensive coordinator's play calling in real time in the way that it happened for the Eagles' Brian Johnson last night. Like Peyton Manning was like, they're being stubborn. They're not giving Jalen Hurts any options against this blitz. They haven't countered any, any team that blitzed them pretty much you know, down the stretch well all year, right? And it exposed Jalen Hurts to, to injuries and everything else. It put a lot of burden on him. And he's I mean, not... Jalen Hurts looks really slow. Like him escaping yeah. out of the pocket, it like looks like he's running in slow motion. And like compared to like a Josh Allen or, you know, somebody, I mean, Josh Allen is like constantly hurt too. But like, you know, for a quarterback who's known for his running ability and ability to run within the pocket to throw, he just seemed like incredibly physically compromised. And also they're without A.J. Brown. Again, injuries, injuries, injuries. But it just looked like they were like doing a, a bad imitation of themselves in a way. All right, why don't we stop there and we can continue our conversation about the NFL in our bonus segment. Maybe we can get to C.J. Stroud in Houston, Jordan Love with the Packers, the weather, Peacock streaming a game, a playoff game to the annoyance of many fans, but not enough to stop people from watching the NFL. Up next, we'll talk about the departures of Nick Saban, Bill Belichick, and Pete Carroll. 
By the end of 1994, his fourth year in Cleveland, Nick Saban had finally molded a defense for the Browns that was one of the NFL's best. Saban used that success to land a job as the head coach at Michigan State after the season. But he would later say his time working for Browns head coach Bill Belichick were the, quote, four worst years of my life. A comment and a sentiment that never apparently soured their friendship. They remained close over the next 30 years, racking up pretty much every accolade and accomplishment possible as head football coaches, cementing themselves as the greats of their generation. And they'll remain forever linked together. Saban, now 72 years old and Bilicek 71, is a step down from the jobs that made them legends. Saban announced his retirement from the University of Alabama last Wednesday, and Bilicek said the next morning that he'd be moving on from the New England Patriots. And let's not forget 72-year-old Pete Carroll, who was also forced out last week as head coach of the Seattle Seahawks, to round out that trio of champion coaches. But first, let's hear a clip from Nick Saban talking about his relationship with Bilicek. I think that sometimes people have a real true love and respect for someone. You really love to see them have this success and continue to have this success. And I don't know how many people really could understand, you know, that kind of relationship. And that's kind of how I feel about Bill. Really nice of you to commission an orchestra to play that as as a tribute, Joel. <laughs> well, so weren't you moved? Are you still crying? We were we were crying for Jerry Jones. Now we're crying for Nick Saban and Bill Belichick. Yes, mm-hmm. sir. Very emotional episode. Uh, but Josh, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time on Belichick last week. So let's start with Saban here, who I know you must have a lot of complicated feelings about as an LSU fan. So what did you think when you learned uh, Saban was finally stepping down? My feelings about LSU football are. Rarely complicated, <laughs> very sim- simple and guttural. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what I think about Saban stepping down is that it cemented his position as the greatest college football coach of all time, which he already was by the numbers. He won seven national titles, just one at LSU, six at Alabama, most in college football history. I um, mean, now Alabama, everybody thinks of it as this legendary program because of Bear Bryant and all of that. But people forget what state that it was in when Saban took over in 2007. Um, the coaches who preceded him, the five coaches, went a combined 51 and 55. Um, those five included a guy that Joel knows well, Dennis Francione, who left TCU and Joel Anderson uh, to go to Bama and then voluntarily left Alabama <laughs> to go to Texas A&M. He was not fired. He just was like, I'm going to move on and move to a better job at Texas A&M. Um, you know, uh, so that's one marker of where Alabama was before Saban got there. Another one is that in its long history of success, Alabama had never won a Heisman Trophy before Saban got there. His players won four of them. Um, and so, you know, Saban, his players won those trophies. His teams won those titles because he was a great recruiter. He was great at player development. He was great at instilling discipline. But I think the biggest factor and one that you wouldn't be able to know just by his demeanor was his adaptability and his self-knowledge. He won in the BCS era. He won in the playoff era. He won with prehistoric offenses. He won with modernized pass-happy ones. And when he retired this past week, and this is why I'm saying it cemented his position as as the greatest of all time, um, he said something that so few legendary coaches ever say, that he just didn't have the stamina at age 72, to do the job the way that he believed it needed to be done. And so he did the sensible thing, which was to stop doing it. 
Um, now, Stefan, it's harder for a college football coach to have the kind of monomaniacal control over a program that Saban exemplified because now um, with NIL and the transfer portal, it's shifted the sports balance of power more towards the players, not totally, but there's been a shift. And so, you know, Saban has complained about these things, but he said they're not why he retired. Um, so I guess my question for you is, do you believe him? Huh. Kind of? Yeah. Saban spoke so highly of this current Alabama team that he managed to get into the college football playoff, lost that close game to Michigan, um, that you have to believe that it wasn't like he was upset about the era, about the way the sport has changed. He rolled with it. Um, and he continued to succeed with it. Roll tide, baby. Um, and continued to succeed in that environment. And that, if not anything else, Joel, is the hallmark of a great coach in any sport. It's the ability to not get locked into your ways, to get set into your ways, and to anticipate what's coming ahead. And Saban seemed to have the ability to do that. Oh, absolutely. Um, he was definitely ahead of his time. And actually, it leads me to, the, I have sort of a provocative theory about Nick Saban that I'm going to sort of trot out here, and that major college football basically desegregated in the late 60s and early 70s, right? But I have this theory that Nick Saban led the true integration of the SEC right around the late 90s, early 2000s, which is you, if, if people can go back a generation, um, the first major programs to really recruit black athletes, like with enthusiasm and vigor, were like the Miamis, the Florida States, the Oklahomas. And like there were a few others like USC, Colorado, Washington, Syracuse, whatever, but like really prior, prioritizing black athletic talent and bringing it in um, in a way. And like the SEC just did not have that reputation for many, many years, even after they'd integrated. Um, and they were not a dominant league for much of my early childhood. So like you could go from, you know, the time that Bear Bryant steps down in the 70s until around, you know, Steve Spurrier's success at Florida is sort of separate and apart from that because he... It, it wasn't based on like these major recruiting wins in the ways that others were. And also like, um, the SEC wasn't fully optimized and like all, all the programs weren't, weren't running at full steam like they are today. So when Nick Saban comes to LSU in 2000, first of all, he wins with black quarterbacks, which were not very common in the SEC. Even at this time, he had Rohan Davey and Marcus Randall, right? And then he changes like recruiting in the SEC. Like in three of his final four years at LSU, he recruited to top four classes. When he returned to the SEC at Bama in 2007, Bama finishes with a class ranked outside of the top seven only twice over the next 17 recruiting cycles. So when people talk about like the SEC is like this dominant, you know, dominant conference and you know, the sun revolves around the SEC and college football. I think a lot of what people are talking about is what Nick Saban actually did there, that he he figured out a way to bring the SEC into the 21st century and sort of shed its earlier reputation as hostile to black athletes. And once that changed and changed fast and got that machine going in Tuscaloosa, everybody else had no choice but to keep up. 
right? Like they had to keep up. And once more money got into college football, they started doing a lot of the things that Nick Saban did and started hiring his guys. And a big part of his legacy of Nick Saban is being a winner. And, you know, he didn't do all these things out of the goodness of his own heart. But I do think that like that is another important part of his legacy that he like, he turned the SEC, he made them catch up with everybody else in college football. And uh, that's where we are where we are today. I like that. It's a really smart take, I think. You know, one thing that it leaves out is that I, I think Spurrier was was more kind of parallel to the advent of the SEC championship game. And so there are these kind mm-hmm. of business reasons also um, in terms of mm-hmm. television deals and the rise of mega conferences that the SEC rose in the way it did. But I, I think you're right that he lifted the conference by his the outstanding performance of his teams by his example, by, uh, I think, the recruitment and deployment of black athletes and and black quarterbacks. But, you know, um, Alabama and LSU remain two schools that have never had a black head coach. And so, um, uh, and and Alabama, Hmm. you know, chose... Uh, Kalen DeBoer to to succeed him. So um, I'd, I'd like In to circle four hours. Yeah, I'd like to circle back to that um, maybe towards the end of our, our segment, Joel, and kind of hear your thoughts on where Alabama goes from here. But maybe let's you know shift a little bit to to Belichick and, and Carroll first, Stefan. Um, we talked last week about how Belichick maybe is defined you know both by his success, but in more recent years by his lack of change or his inability to change and evolve. There was a big takeout in ESPN by um, Seth Wickersham, Don Van Natto, Wright Thompson about the final years of the Belichick-Kraft-Brady relationship, um, which seems like it was defined by a kind of circular firing squad element, blame shifting, um, you know, Belichick wanting to get rid of Brady and saying he couldn't play anymore, and Robert Kraft watching as the Bucs won a Super Bowl and saying... I can't remember the exact quote, but it was basically, you know, Belichick just, you know, fucking told me that this guy couldn't play and now he's winning the Super Bowl. Kind of what were your your takeaways from that piece and from the Belichick craft announcement and, you know, this, you know, revelation that Belichick interviewed with the Falcons and is like not ready to go. Um, very clearly not ready to go. Each human is different. Nick Saban seems much more comfortable in his self. And that's not to say that Nick Saban might not be, might not come back next year and coach somewhere else, or we might not see him on college football broadcasts somewhere. The itch doesn't necessarily go away, but Belichick's stubbornness and his personality have always been monomaniacal outwardly. Um, And that I think, is the sort of personality difference with these departures. Saban, like you said, is leaving on his own terms near the top at a time when he seems self-aware enough to say that I'm getting older and this is a tiring job and I'm not going to enjoy it as much if I have to do all the things that I'm required to do to be good at it. Belichick is stubbornly saying, I'm not ready to quit. I may be 71, but I'm just going to keep going. Um, He's maybe also an, oh, shooting for the personal milestone of the most all-time you know, career wins. Understandable. Ego factors a lot here. I mean, I don't know that Nick Saban necessarily had any more milestones that he could have um, accumulated. Nick Saban could have won 300 games yeah. if he'd stuck around another year. You know, I was surprised oh, he gave that I didn't up, realize yeah. he was that close, yeah. Yeah, I think he's a 291, I think, right now. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, so there's clearly different 
egos, different, um, just different personalities here. And the interesting thing to me about the three coaches that retired Joel or are moving on left is that they all really do have sort of distinctive personalities and bring different sort brought different sorts of elements to how they ran teams and how they viewed their sport. You know, Belichick, the taciturn X's and O's genius, Saban, someone who was that, um, but also had a much more approachable personality, though it didn't often show up in news conferences. It showed up in lots of other ways. And Carol, this sort of exuberant new age whack job who succeeded both in college and in the NFL. One thing I'd say that sort of binds them all is their belief in themselves and their willingness to change midstream and how it saved their careers. So like, I mean, maybe Nick Saban was never in a position where his career needed to be saved, but I, I was at the national championship game in 2017 when SEC offensive player of the year, two year starter, Jalen Hurts is struggling and can't get anything going against Georgia. They go in at halftime and Saban comes back out with Tua, like a true freshman who at that point had not started a game. He'd played in some games, but had not started. And that ultimately won him a championship, right? You go to um, Bill Belichick. He has Drew Bledsoe on his team, highest played player in NFL history at the time. He gets hurt, comes back, and you've got this, you know, sixth round quarterback, you know, not highly regarded. And he says, you know what? I'm going to stick with Tom Brady. At that point, I mean, Bilicek hadn't proven himself to be a winning NFL head coach, but that he had that unwavering belief in himself to go with Brady over Bledsoe, that's something. And then Pete Carroll, once again, like he had, he had, he brought in his, this Matt Flynn, you know, Josh knows Matt Flynn very well from LSU, who I didn't even think was that great at LSU, but whatever. They have this guy, Matt Flynn, who's supposed to be the quarterback, but they also have a third round rookie quarterback in Russell Wilson. And Pete Carroll, his motto is compete. He let them compete. Russell Wilson wins. And he decides to let Russell Wilson start. And it won him a Super Bowl, right? So those decisions, their ability to be like, you know what? Damn what the the implications are for this. Like, damn the risk of going with the lesser prominent, the less tested quarterback here. I'm going to go with that and go with my gut. And I mean, you can just see how that paid off for them in a lot of ways. I mean, just if, if, if either one of those guys don't make that decision, there's no telling where their careers go, right? Like how we remember their legacy, but that they were willing to make the hard decision at the most important position at that time, like really save their legacies. And now we get to talk about them today. Uh, you know, and, and I'm happy we, we did that because otherwise I don't know that we would talk about Pete Carroll, right? Like Belichick and Saban take up so much oxygen in this conversation, but people kind of forget about Pete Carroll. But Pete Carroll, man, he was at USC. They were great, man. The last time, the only time that USC has been nationally great during my lifetime is when Pete Carroll was there. So yeah, man, it's um to lose all those guys at one time and the idea that both of them, two of them still want to keep going. I'm, I guess it's not a surprise because it's just the competitors they are. Speaking of hard decisions, you know, Pete Carroll <laughs> makes the decision. The Seahawks pass the ball instead of instead of run it uh, in the Super Bowl against Belichick. You know, that cost them a Super Bowl. Uh, Belichick screws up and the Patriots screw up the end game with Tom Brady. That potentially cost them Super Bowl. Uh, and I think that's the thing about Saban. They got to so many title games, they didn't win all of them. But you can't look at this guy's career and say that he left anything on the table. Like, And that's what I think makes him so great. And I think it's also particular to college football. There are ways in which that job is harder than being an NFL head coach, given the issues with the recruiting 
Um, and, you know, everything that we've talked about with now, especially the NIL, NIL and the portal. But it is possible to build a program. You have to be great to do it, that it becomes, if not self-perpetuating, then at least more self-perpetuating than an NFL franchise. It is so much harder to win consistently in the NFL than in, in college. And so, um, you know, I thought Bill Barnwell had a really smart, um, I think it was a, a, a video that I saw kind of pushing back against what's become the late career narrative around Belichick and that he was kind of a creation of Tom Brady. Like, I think everybody knows that Belichick was a, a great coach, but I think some of the details have been forgotten. For instance, the fact that they won a, a high-stakes playoff game when Brady had to leave injured and Bledsoe came back in. They won yep. Super Bowls before Tom Brady was Tom Brady, when he was a game manager. They won a Super Bowl 13-3 to when Tom Brady was Tom Brady and the Patriots offense couldn't put anything together and the Belichick-led defense completely shut down the Rams and whiz kid Sean McVay in such a way yep. that like M McVay had to like completely rethink his entire approach to football and then the Rams would come back and win a Super Bowl themselves. But uh, I think... Those moments had even kind of receded in my own mind because so much of the narrative has been about the end, about Brady, how that was bungled. Um, and so I, I think we tend to f forget um, these genius moments of, of Belichick's. I talk about the two bills, 30 for 30 here a lot. And uh, I don't know, maybe we should do, I don't know. We, I, I feel like people should revisit it because I was left with overwhelming set. Man, I really felt sorry for these <laughs> these millionaires. You're in a, and you're in a mood today. You know, uh, I hope people don't, you know, use this as an opportunity to disavow the idea that I'm just solely woke. But I saw Bill Parcells and Bill Belichick at the end of that, and I kind of ached for them because I was like, man, these guys really have shared something together. They really care. You know, they, they've had this history with each other, and they just can't bridge the divide. And then to read the stories about what's going on with Belichick, Kraft, and Brady, and it just feels like... You guys should have learned from this. And it's just like, for everything they know about football, Man. it feels like they've kind of struggled at the other stuff. Okay. I, as promised earlier in the segment, Joel, I'm I'm really curious for your thoughts about what's next for Bama. And the big debate, both kind of in the years leading up to this and in like the 48 hours after Saban left, is like, is it the height of idiocy and arrogance to want to succeed this guy? Dan Lanning, Oregon was rumored, decided to stay. A bunch of coaches... Um, I don't know if, if Lanning was offered the job or what, but the guy that they ended up going with, uh, Kalen DeBoer, was the head coach at Washington, just made it to the national championship game, lost to Michigan, has no experience coaching in the South, has an incredible head coaching record at the NAIA level and in Division One. So, you know, what do you think of Bama's choice of him, his choice to take the job, and kind of what to expect from this program in the post-Saban era? Well, as a lot of people have been pointing out, you know, before Nick Saban went to LSU, he didn't have any experience recruiting in the SEC or in the South. And when Urban Meyer went to Florida, um, he didn't have a lot of experience, you know, recruiting or, or, or in, in the South. So um, I don't necessarily think that has to be determinative. Uh, I, I do think it will be a factor. Um, but, I mean, it's hard to do better than a guy that, you know, coached in the national championship game and has won at every level. Like that is sort of like, if you're looking for somebody, you know, irrespective of replacing Nick Saban, that's what you want. Now, is it dumb to take that job? I don't know that I would want it, but man, look around. 
all college jobs are potentially bad. Like, you don't get a lot of time anywhere. Like, ask Willie Taggart or Chad Morris or Manny Diaz or whatever, right? Like, you'll be out in two years if you do really poorly at Duke, you know, or, or Michigan State. Like, it, like, you don't get a lot of time anywhere. Like, Brian Harson at Auburn. And, and, yeah, Brian Harson, Lincoln Riley and Billy Napier and Brian Kelly. And I mean, you can tell me if Brian Kelly's actually in the hot seat or not, but it's been two years and people are like, man, what's going on with the Brian Kelly program right now? So like all coaches are delusional. All fans are delusional. So you might as well just go with the winners and where they're going to pay you. And so I'm like, being told, Joel, that the buyout from these contracts can be lucrative <laughs> if you were fired. <laughs> hey, man, just they'll pay in. you to I stay at home. That. Yeah. They will pay you to stay at home. So if it, if 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 Kalen DeBoer is not Nick Saban, and he almost certainly won't be, I'm sure he will uh, be paid well for the trouble. In the next segment, we'll talk with Ben Rothenberg about his new biography on Naomi Osaka titled Her Journey to Finding Her Power and Her Voice. On Monday at the Australian Open, Naomi Osaka lost to Caroline Garcia in straight sets, 6-4-7-6. More significant than the scoreline was the fact that Osaka was playing at all. This was her first match in a major in more than a year after she stepped away from the tour to have a child. This uh, match marked the return of a global icon, the world's highest paid female athlete and an outspoken advocate for mental health. Joining us now is our friend Ben Rothenberg. He is the author of a new biography titled Naomi Osaka, Her Journey to Finding Her Power and Her Voice. Ben, welcome. Thanks for having me, Josh. Osaka is obviously a great tennis player. She's still only 26 years old. She's a four-time Grand Slam singles champion, former world number one. Uh, She's also, I'd argue, one of the most interesting and important athletes of this century. There's obviously a book-length answer to this question, but give (laughs) us the short version here. What is it about her that you find so fascinating? I think it's just how many different topics she touches on in her life and in her career. And that was true from the first time I met her already. The first story I did about her for the New York Times back when she was just 18, when she was ranked outside the top 100 still, and she was playing, actually, I'm in Melbourne at the Australian Open. And for the first time I met her in, on Player Lounge under Rod Laver Arena, it was already then about multiculturalism. It was about her living in the U.S., about having a Haitian father and representing Japan and not speaking Japanese, but meeting all this Japanese media who was really interested in her and sort of conflicts of that emerged from that and the different unique ideas she had. And right away, also, there was also this really unique personality where she had this really clear mix of very present insecurity and and shyness. She talked in our first meeting about how she was afraid to make eye contact with Serena Williams in the locker room, trying to look at her phone because uh, she didn't dare to look at Serena. But at the same time, she had this really deep-seated confidence as well that went with that insecurity where she thought she really could be one of the best players of all time. And lo and behold, a little over two years later, two and a half years later, she looks at and beats Serena uh, at one of the most tumultuous, chaotic U.S. Open finals ever. And so that kind of mix of of strength and vulnerability and these different cultures, all these different things, I think, made a very layered person and layered character right away. And that only grew richer and more layered with time, especially as the culture weighed in on her in, in very strong ways. She became this real cultural Rorschach test to a lot of different people. A lot of different people saw very different things when they looked at Naomi Osaka at different points in her career. And the key turning point then was 2020 after the murder of George Floyd, when Mm -hmm. she 
sort of came out of this shell and took a very public social justice stance. And a lot of people were surprised to hear Naomi Osaka being an activist because she had been portrayed so frequently in the media um, and in interviews as this reserved, shy sort of teenager. Um, Stories seemed to focus on her like internet habits as opposed to her inner thoughts. This was a big change. Yeah, it wasn't. It was a conscious change by herself as well. She really made a resolution. She said early in the pandemic, she made a, a Twitter statement saying, I'm done being shy. I feel like I've missed out on a lot of opportunities by being shy and by holding back. And I mean, she used the kind of unrelatable uh, example of one time when she met Jay-Z and was too shy to really hold a conversation with Jay-Z, which most people haven't had that experience in their life. But she she was resolved to, to make things different. And that came, that sort of pledge came weeks before uh, the murder of George Floyd. So very quickly, that became this animating moment for her, obviously, as it was for a lot of people around the country. Uh, but she was very much a part of that and became this activist and this outspoken person and eventually this disruptor in tennis, you know, forcing the, the stoppage of the play in the Cincinnati tournament that was being held uh, concurrent to the stoppages that were going on in the NBA bubble in Orlando at the same time. Uh, she was the one person being a disruptive activist in tennis and really stopping the tour pretty single-handedly once the tours finally had bent to her to her will and, and and stopped along with her. And so tennis in recent years has not had disruptive activism. There's been a ton of players who don't speak out on different things uh, overtly. I'm, I'm in Melbourne, for example, and Margaret Court Arena is here, and Margaret Court gets a lot of criticism for her homophobic stances from a lot of different parts of culture, but no active tennis players are ever the ones who, who speak up about that. And so there's this real culture of, of silence and often indifference when it comes to politics in, in tennis. And Naomi was the one to, to buck that in a real way. And yeah, that it came from this person who had been, by her own admission, so shy for so long, uh, made it more remarkable. You know, Ben, uh, for Naomi Osaka, the comparison with Serena Williams is unavoidable, right? Mm-hmm. And part of her story that is really similar is that her father, was a huge part of her development, upbringing, and, you know, sort of the career maintenance. And so can you just tell us a little bit more about a Haitian-American father, Leonard, am I saying it right? Francois. Yeah, Francois is right. Yeah, very similar, actually. Both of both Richard Williams and Leonard Francois were inspired to get their daughters playing tennis by watching the French Open. Uh, Richard uh, saw the prize money that Virginia Ruzich won in the 70s for, for being a champion there and said, hey, that's a lot of money for a woman to make playing tennis. I could, I could do that with my daughters. And that's his sort of origin story. And Leonard Francois was watching the Williams sisters at the French Open uh, a couple decades later win the doubles title together and looked at his own two uh, black daughters and said, I see them on the screen. I see what they, their potential to be these people traveling in the world and, and doing this thing and, and really modeled his family on the Williams family blueprint and read interviews and watched his own instructional videos the way that, that Richard had. Uh, but yeah, really tried to follow everything the Williams did, eventually following the Williamses to their major trading place in their teens of Florida, moving his own family there and really uprooting their lives from Japan to the U.S. and then specifically to Florida uh, to chase them. And yeah, that was something that was very, very clear and, and not accidental for the Osakas. And that's made it uh, Serena's impact in Nami's life has been profound. I mean, she, she, her whole life is, especially as the younger sister of the two, she was kind of the, the Serena fan. And her older sister, Mari, who was also uh, raised as intensely as a pro, was more of a Venus fan. And yeah, so so Serena has meant a ton uh, to the life and direction of Naomi Osaka. You can't tell Naomi's story without understanding and knowing Serena's. When you hear about Naomi now, the phrase the Osaka sisters is not really often tossed around, right. especially in mainstream press. Mari's professional career was not um, a success on the order of Naomi's, far from it. And her story kind of took a turn recently when she publicly accused 
their father of abuse on on social media. Um, this happened after your book came out, but there's something really dark about that, obviously. Um, but even before that allegation was made, these sisters and their kind of diverging paths, there's a way that it's a more kind of common story, I think, in tennis, or one that shows more the pitfalls of a choice that a parent can make here. And this family had some extremely hard times. And Naomi, it was kind of on her to make the family financially solvent. I mean, they were on the verge of being evicted before her first big win in the professional tour. And so I, I guess with Mari's recent accusation, it kind of reframes everything. Um, but I'm wondering what um, kind of your takeaways were about their upbringing, maybe what it says about the family and what it says about choosing this path in tennis more broadly. On the specifics of what Mari said, I have not heard from her. I reached out to her. She deleted her post within, I think, about an hour of it going up. And I, I reached out to her. I've not heard back from her. I did not hear back from anyone else in her family as well um, who I messaged. So I, I don't know what has been going on most very recently. It seems like something's going on recently from the way she posted and spoke about this. And, and I don't know the details on that, so I don't want to comment too much. But I hope everyone is is doing all right because it was a troubling post that she put up for sure. And that was not language that she had used in any of our previous conversations describing her her childhood or her father. Uh, so I don't know what's what's shifted uh, or what's happened recently to sort of cause that that statement from her. So hope they're doing well. I don't know. But you're right that there is this real diverging path in, in these two siblings. I mean, Venus, people talk about Serena being better than Venus, but Venus is, by almost any measurement, the second best women's tennis player of the 21st century. I mean, she won seven grand slams, a bunch, 14 more in doubles with Serena and a couple mixed two, and was also number one. And and Mari, yeah, it's more common that the sibling did not come close. And Mari got to a career high of 280, which is great for anyone sort of considering themselves in the world, but it's below the threshold by a good amount of what people think it takes to break even in the sport. And that was her very highest watermark. Most of the time was a bit below that as well. So yeah, I think I think the story show my book hopefully shows in the sections on Mari show that there is a scenario where this doesn't work out. Where you get all the all the sacrifices, all the commitment, all the rearranged childhood uh, to to pursue this this dream relentlessly. And more often than not, it doesn't work out. Naomi is the the outlier in the situation of someone who actually actually made it. And so many more stories around you know kids and families who were flocked down to these various Florida academies to to go all in on this tennis dream. There's a lot more Maris than there are Naomi's out there, and that can include you know troubled views of of their family or or, or sort of being shaken by by their own upbringings in in retrospect. You write, Ben, how the sort of solitary life of the aspiring tennis pro in these academies um, influenced Naomi um, the way that she basically didn't have friends. She online schooled. Yeah. She trained all day and then had to go do studies. Um, she was uh, she was isolated, hermetic almost. There's really no childhood to speak of there. How did all of that Sort of how has she come to terms with that as she has matured and um, and as you talk to her for this book? Yeah, I think that she is sort of coming to terms, and this was, I think, more apparent after the French Open issue, where she obviously had her most clear mental health struggles very publicly, and it's become this huge international flat point. I think she's realized that her upbringing didn't necessarily prepare her well for being this talked about or this in the spotlight. She said, you know, I only knew three or four people growing up, or basically three people, and that was my sister and my parents. And for almost all my life, that was it. That was my whole world. That was my whole social network. And once people started talking about me, me being Naomi and, and using her voice, I, I, I thought everything everyone said was important because 
in my life, I only knew people who were in my immediate family, and I only knew these people whose opinions I cared about and who I who I loved and were very important to me. So, sort of learning how to meet strangers and have strangers talk about you and meet new people has been a struggle for her. And it's a more extreme version than most tennis players. I don't think most tennis players uh, in, in you know in Florida who were either at academies or other places have quite that isolated a life. I mean, Naomi didn't have a, a cell phone until she turned eighteen, which is pretty unusual for for someone of her generation. Because she said she didn't have anyone to call because they were basically only talked to her own family. And yeah, and being completely uprooted, being on their courts by themselves, these were a bunch of unusual things that were make, I think, their case more extreme. Uh, so you see some, at times, uh, exaggerated versions of, of being not, let's say, socialized the way that even other tennis players uh, in the homeschool variety can be. So Ben, so while Naomi's trying and, and Mari are, are trying to pursue this lifestyle, you know, become these uh, youth tennis phenoms, you know, they're struggling financially and it comes up that, you know, this gets to a part of the story that I think we're all really interested in about how she came to represent Japan in international competition, right? Mm-hmm. And you talk, obviously there were a lot of financial incentives for them to do so, but it seems to me like Patrick McEnroe, you know, the issues with Taylor Townsend, like it seems like, for lack of a better term, that the Americans kind of fumbled the bag here as well yeah. too, right? No, I definitely, I definitely think that was, that was the critique. Certainly as Naomi emerged and won her first Grand Slam and was a new champion. I mean, she is, uh, you know, Asian American. She's a, she's been a U.S. citizen since birth. She had this passport. She still has this passport. She had this option to do it. And they went under the USTA radar. And part of it was by her own admission and certainly by the stats, she was not a particularly impressive junior player when she was playing these tournaments and she was, you know, from eight to 13, 14 years old, she wasn't winning very much. She had a, maybe about a 500 record and, and wasn't seen as a great talent. She was, a lot of coaches mentioned she was sort of considered a chubby kid back then. And they kind of didn't see past that a lot of times at a very superficial level. And so she was, was overlooked. And yeah, there's a bunch of, obviously a lot of players in Florida and limited resources sometimes for the USDA to, to give meaningful financial support to all the young kids out there in Florida who want, or around the country as well, but obviously concentrated in Florida who, who want to chase this tennis dream. They didn't see it in Naomi until maybe it was too late. And then Japan, uh, did get her on the radar and had fewer players. And she was at, from a distance in Japan, obviously being in, in, in that country, but the Osaka saw some promise there. And, and Kane Shikori, you mentioned the financial side, Kane Shikori was already on tour and already making a ton of money, uh, compared to his ranking on the tour, mostly being outside the top 10 and still being one of the highest paid athletes in the world. Uh, and I think they saw a lot of benefits to that Japanese model. And it wound up obviously being a big accelerator, accelerator, especially early in her career uh, when she was making her first breakthroughs. The Japanese sponsors were very eager to, to, to gobble her up, and especially with the Tokyo Olympics on the horizon, that they knew she could be one of the faces of that big event. So a lot of timing things in terms of Nishikori and those Tokyo Olympics, I think, really conspired to make Japan the certainly the clear play financially and and the USDA didn't and couldn't want to compete with that on a certain level. But you're right, there are cultural things for sure as well that I think cause some reticence, and, and rightfully so, about, about the USDA. There are these three flashpoints in her career where she became part of a larger cultural conversation. The 2018 US Open final, um, one of the most notable sports moments uh, of modern times where Serena Williams gets into this conflict with the chair empire and it becomes this entire kind of referendum on Serena and her life and her career. And Naomi Osaka, it just happens to be her first Grand Slam title. And she ends up in tears, not of joy, after after the match, just because of how overwhelming the whole experience was. Then the 2021 um, French Open, where she 
opts out of press conferences and then ends up pulling out of the the tournament under threat of fines. And it becomes this kind of moment around um, mental health and athletes kind of advocating for themselves. And then the one we already talked about um, with her activism around George Floyd and um, Mm -hmm. the shooting of Jacob Blake. Only one of those moments, I think, was Naomi kind of in control of what was happening around her, or there was something kind of volitional or her making a choice. I mean, I guess there was with the French Open, but it seems like she wasn't really expecting the response that she got, and it became something much bigger. Um, And so I, I guess I'm wondering, it's impossible to think of an alternative universe in which these things didn't happen and she had a more quote unquote normal tennis career, but it's just her her fame and her life has been so defined by these kinds of moments in a way that I think is so unusual for for an athlete. And I, I wonder if you kind of thought about it in that way, um, like what what she would be like or what her the response to her would would be like in the absence of of these moments where she really transcended sports and became this just enormous cultural figure. Yeah, I was very conscious as I was writing the book and editing the book, honestly, of how enormous those those three moments were, especially the two where she had less the least control in the 2018 U.S. Open and the 2021 French, and and how much uh, you know aftermath there was in the culture and how much those reverberated around and how many people were weighing in and commenting on on her and just cutting down those chapters to size where they could fit in the book. And it's obviously a fairly long book, even still, uh, was one of the tougher challenges of making those moments full, but still relatively compact because they were, you know, only short stretches of her life chronologically. Yeah, it's tough to know what, what would happen if she hadn't had that that moment at the French Open, let's say, if she hadn't been mentally struggling with other different factors at this very, you know, kind of peak moment in her career. But her mental health had been something that had gone up and down throughout her life. And it really was only when it re- reached that sort of breaking point when she made this, this attempt to make things easier for herself by saying she wasn't going to do press because she found press to be a stressor. And that wound up completely backfiring and becoming this huge controversy at a time when she did want to recede from the spotlight. It completely went the other direction and became a bigger, bigger story than ever for something that was very personal to her, saying, basically, I'm struggling. I want less attention, even if she said it in a way that was less sympathetic and articulate than that. She was a bit more combative and confrontational in her in her statements or challenging the media or or the tournaments, rather, saying, you can't make me do this. I'm going to I won't do it and, and we'll play on. And it became this, yeah, huge referendum on her as well. And it's tough to know what, what things would happen. Let's say, for example, if she had the other one, the 2018 US Open, if she had won that match against Serena and no controversy had happened, I think she would have been a much smaller deal. You know, Bianca Andreescu did the same thing basically a year later, beating Serena in a 2018 US Open final. And she was a big star in Canada, but not necessarily a global phenomenon. We're still and waiting for your Bianca Andreescu book, Ben. <laughs> and there is one other writer did write a Bianca book a couple of years ago, uh, qu- pretty quickly after she won. But yeah, it would have been, she would have been big in Japan, uh, to use that expression, but probably not much else for Naomi in terms of, of the US market. But yeah, being present and being so clean around in this sort of very messy situation around the 2018 U.S. Open. I think a lot of uh, Americans uh, saw Naomi as this person who was this sort of oasis of of likability and innocence in this in this very messy, chaotic scenario. And, and she got a lot of positive goodwill towards that and name recognition of the culture, too. I mean, people were just throwing her name around and she became a household name uh, in this way that wasn't going to happen just by winning the U.S. Open even. In a way that like even Coco Golf, I would say, uh, didn't in a, in a match when she just won the U.S. Open last year. That's a pure sports story, Coco Golf. People, if you're a tennis fan or a sports fan more widely, you'll know Coco Golf. But she's not someone who they're debating on the View, you know, days later. 
So Ben, obviously this is a biography. This wasn't uh, her memoir or anything like that. So I'm just sort of curious to know what do the Osakas know about this book and what's been their response to it if they have one so far? Yeah, so they've known about the project since it was started. I've, I've kept her, her and her team in a loop, and, and they've known about it all the time. It was done with their knowledge, and, and Naomi was uh, cooperative at times at ar- arm's length, I would say. It wasn't like, yeah, you can get unlimited time with Naomi to sit down as much as you want, but they were responsive. Naomi herself was was uh, hands-on involved in the fact-checking process, which I appreciated in through the later last, late stages of the book, You know, going through a whole list of things and saying a lot of unreported details, especially about her childhood, uh, that only she would, would know the answer to, and going through and confirming 90% of it and a few small clarifying tweaks on the other 10%. So that was a big reassurance for me as a journalist, just trying to get things right here. So I really appreciated that from her. Um, I had a long conversation with her coach about it. It's not an immediate family, but her, her current coach, Wim Fassett, who was her coach, then left as her motivation was was unclear in 2022. And she was kind of fading out from the sport. And I was back with her. He was very enthusiastic about the book, too. And uh, I heard from her mom also, who was had, had nice things to say about it as well. I, don't, I haven't talked to Naomi about it yet. And I'm not sure who else in the family has read it currently, but it's been it's been positive, which is good. Uh, I'm happy they like it. Obviously, it's, there are things in there that I'm, I know that family wishes probably weren't in there. Some of the, the things they've had, you know, conflicts with with coaches in, in Naomi's childhood who never got paid, what they were promised, uh, her FTX sponsorship, let's say. I'm, I guess they probably wish it wasn't mentioned because she's one of the celebrity athletes who was caught up in that along with Tom Brady and... Shaq and whoever else. So, you know, it's not obviously, it's not a book they would, it's not the same book that they would have written themselves, but as a journalist, uh, it was how I felt like I had to tell a lot of those moments and I'm happy with it and hope people who read it are too. Ben, very quickly before we go, um, I mentioned the introduction, (laughs) but we didn't discuss it all in the, uh, in the segment about her comeback, her match, uh, especially against Caroline Garcia. She is one of now many WTA players to come back um, after having a, a child, and she has declared that she's going to play a full schedule now. What do you see from her on the court, and what are you kind of looking for as she makes her comeback this year? She looked really good in her very first tournament. She played in Brisbane. She played a really high quality second match, actually against another former number one, Carolina Pliskova, who and they just like the stats were incredibly great for both of these women who are two of the best like pure power players in the sport. I think Naomi had like forty winners and only thirteen unforced errors in that match, which she lost in three tight sets, but it was really, really strong. The ball striking was great. Against Garcia a couple nights ago, she was a little bit she didn't do well in return. Garcia faced no break points and Garcia hit like thirteen aces. And Garcia is one of the best servers on tour, but Naomi was not didn't challenge her much in that category. And Naomi only got broke once herself the entire time, too. So the margins were pretty small. She played a player seated 16th at this tournament, and that player was probably playing one of her better nights in Garcia. So I think there's easily 100 players in this draw who Naomi would have beaten. Yeah, different draw. Maybe she, she would them. be in the yeah. quarterfinals. Luck at, the draw is, luck at the draw is the most important luck in tennis, for sure. Like, who you wind up facing. Much more than people think about, like, oh, the net cord falls one way or the other. No, it's about who you have to play. And she played a good player who was playing above average tennis. And that's also something that is going to keep happening for her because she is this icon, because she is a superstar, because she is this, you know, hundred millionaire of some degree. Players are going to be motivated to beat her. She's going to get a lot of people's best look. Caroline Garcia was ready to step up and, 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 and beat Naomi Osaka, which she'd never done before. And knowing that she was maybe not at, at full power yet in her comeback, uh, there's maybe uh, licking her lips more for that opportunity. So it's not going to be easy, but she seems committed. She seemed, wasn't too, uh, bummed by the loss and wasn't too down, which has been a challenge, obviously, in her career, taking losses hard. Uh, but I think she has a good amount of buoyancy right now and and is, has some 
planned for a fuller schedule that she has in recent years. So she'll maybe come into a, a city near you. <laughs> and real quick, Ben, how did she handle the press conference afterward? What was her demeanor at the tournament in dealing with the public? She was good. She was she was good after her loss. She actually wore her. She wore this like very bright iridescent jacket on court and she wore it to her press conference saying that she liked the outfit so much she wanted people to see it again. So she wore it to the podium, which was sort of a, a self-deprecating flex of this of this custom made jacket for herself. Uh, yeah. And she was she was in, in pretty good spirits overall. She'd been upset before she came in in the room. Her agent was telling me that, you know, he, she but in a way that made the team or at least him, he was saying reassured that this did mean something to her and she was annoyed to lose and she was ambitious. She wasn't blase about losing, but she also wasn't wasn't crushed by it. So I think that she's in a pretty good headspace. I think she said that having her daughter gives her like a lot of parents do say more perspective. Not everything is all about winning and losing and you have this other person to, to take care of. And that can hopefully be a yeah, some sort of ballast or buoying influence in, in her life. The book is Naomi Osaka, Her Journey to Finding Her Power and Her Voice. Everybody should check it out. Um, and Ben is one of the hosts of the podcast, No Challenges Remaining, one of the few sports podcasts in existence that is almost as old as this one. Venerable. <laughs> ben, congrats on the book, and thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, everybody. Now it is time for After Balls, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay. We've talked about a lot of athletes on this show, but none of them were like Chris Laskowski. Chris's sport was swimming, and he did it really well. He was a walk-on at the University of Michigan and was so respected by his teammates that he was named co-captain his senior year. Chris didn't go pro or go to the Olympics. After he graduated with an English degree, he moved to Baltimore, where he taught in a public elementary school as part of Teach for America and got a master's in education from Johns Hopkins. Then he got a law degree from George Washington University here in D.C. and worked on affordable housing, environmental restoration, and voting rights at the nonprofit D.C. Appleseed Center for Law and Justice. He spent a year in Moscow as an environmental policy analyst at the U.S. Embassy, where he captained the embassy's softball team and hit three home runs in a single game against the Cubans. And then after all of that, Chris Laskowski became the unlikeliest intern we have ever had on the show. He was 38 years old. He was between jobs. He loved sports and he wanted to learn about journalism. Chris worked with us for about six months in 2014. And he was great. He was a really thorough researcher. He was a good writer. And he was just the kind of person that everyone loves being around. And we loved being around him. After he moved on, we actually kept him on our internal email list for years because he liked to follow along with what we were doing. And we liked to know that he was out there reading and listening. While he was interning for us, Chris also wrote a few pieces for Slate that you edited, Josh, one about ESPN, another really smart piece about the NCAA sanctions against Penn State after the Jerry Sandusky scandal, and one about the disastrous football tenure of Brady Hoke at his alma mater, Michigan, and we'll post a link to those pieces. Chris eventually landed at the city council in D.C., where he helped shape dozens of laws on transportation, climate and the environment, housing, women's health, anti-poverty, and more. This January 7th, he died unexpectedly at home in Washington. He was 47. 
He survived by his wife, Ellison, and a daughter and a son. To honor Chris, we're going to play an afterball that he delivered back in 2014. I think it'll give you a sense of who he was and why he meant so much to so many people. Last week, President Obama announced that the United States would reopen diplomatic relations with Cuba. Many hope that closer U.S.-Cuban relations will improve the situation on the island. Major League Baseball teams were so excited to help that shortly after the president's announcement, the league office had to, according to the New York Times, send a directive to its 30 teams pointing out that it remained illegal to scout players in Cuba or to sign them. Fifteen years ago, as part of President Clinton's efforts to improve the country's relationship, the Baltimore Orioles played the Cuban national team, and over dinner in Havana, Fidel Castro, again, according to the Times, regaled then-Commissioner Bud Selig with tales of Cuban baseball and fantasized about what would happen if the United States and Cuba normalized diplomatic and economic ties. This shift to engagement was a major change from baseball's strident foreign policy of the Cold War era, when, according to historian Ron Briley, quote, Commissioner of Baseball Ford Frick insisted that the national pastime would indoctrinate youth on the virtues of democracy and remain a proud part of our ideal way of life. And so in 1950, it was natural that U.S. Ambassador to Venezuela, Walter Donnelly, turned to the Chicago White Sox slick-fielding rookie shortstop Chico Carrascal to improve America's image in his homeland, where U.S. support for the military dictatorship was not popular. Carrascal was the embodiment of the pre-Ripken era all-glove, no-bat shortstop, but there was something about Chico that made him instantly likable. By 1951, in just his second se season, Chico became the first Latin player to start an All-Star game, winning the fan vote over New York Yankee legend and reigning AL MVP Phil Rizzuto. And after that season, the White Sox reportedly turned down the Boston Red Sox trade offer of Ted Williams for Chico Carrascal. On July 16, 1950, just a few months into Carrascal's rookie season, Ambassador Donnelly tried to tap into that popularity by sponsoring Chico Carrascal Day at Yankee Stadium. The Venezuelan government lavished Chico with expensive gifts, and Chico, on behalf of the Venezuelan people, presented Yankee manager Casey Stengel with an enormous trophy. In a 1951 article in Collier's, Ambassador Donnelly said, the reaction to the trip was terrific, and I honestly believe it was a severe setback to communist propagandists in Venezuela. But any success of this baseball diplomacy was probably more about baseball than diplomacy. In 1958, Venezuelans welcomed a tour of major league players organized by Donnelly, but the same year protesters also pelted then-Vice President Richard Nixon's limo with rocks. Chico, on the other hand, was a beloved figure in Venezuela, inspiring Venezuelan shortstops from Hall of Famer Luis Aparicio to Ozzie Guillen, who teared up at a press conference when speaking about Carrascal's death in 2005. I know Chico as the manager of the fictional Pittsburgh Pistachios, the star of bedtime stories that my dad told me every night. The story started, as most great parenting moments do, on a whim and a memory of a distinctively named middle infielder from childhood. But they gave me and my brother a glimpse into our dad's childhood. I've continued the stories with my own son, sharing Jack Berconti and Mike Schooler as my dad shared Chico. Over the last year, I've had many reasons to reflect on moments I've shared with my dad, and lots of them, at least on the surface, center on sports. Birthdays in the kingdom, dinner at the Frankfurter before Sonny's games, a pilgrimage to Fenway Park. So while there have been lots of reasons to question being a sports fan this year, those small shared memories are, for me, what it's all about and the reason I keep coming back. So thanks, Chico, for your service, and more importantly, thanks, Dad, for everything. And sorry for cheering for the Yankees for so many years. I've got to say, hearing Chris's voice now is really moving, but it also hurts a lot to hear him talk about um, his family, um, his, his father and his own children. Um, if you would like to support Chris's family, we're going to post a link 
on our show page at slate.com slash hangup. There are 529 college savings plans for Chris's two children. Also, if you knew Chris and you want to share any memories, um, you can email us at hangup at slate.com and we can uh, pass those on to you know those all those who loved Chris. I um I didn't know Chris and uh, I you know I've been very moved by the stories just hearing you guys talk about him and hearing that after ball and I, I just um not too long ago looked up his obituary and I don't know if it would help you know you just you mentioned the five twenty nines whatever but um he was apparently a University of Michigan swim team member co captain so I know we have a lot of University of Michigan listeners and. There's a lot of need out there. There's a lot of people, you know, that um, are asking for money and have their hands out. But if if I, I were going to give money, it, it seemed like this would be a really good person and a family to to give it to. Um, so yeah, it just yeah. I mean, thoughts with the family and everybody else, man. That just that just sucks. But um, you know, this work lives on, right? So at least we have that. That is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty and Chris Laskowski. And thanks for listening. Listener.